I'm, I'm definitely like three vodka tonic deep right now, so uh, just just expect expect the worst. You're listening to the Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 97 of the Weekly Group Podcast. My name is Austin Statton, and uh, Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxson are off this week as uh, Kevin has a hot date on Friday night with a uh, girl named Rebecca. So shout out to you, Rebecca. Congratulations on dating one of the uh, the, the bachelors, I guess, of the uh, the Weekly Group Podcast, the only bachelor for the Weekly Group Podcast. I guess I guess Hunter kind of counts it, but we'll get it, we'll get into that. In I'm a second. taken by the people, Austin. That's who I belong to. Fair enough. Oh, Fair how enough. noble. You're part of the world. But uh, Jeremy Paxson is currently in Boston, and from the latest text message uh, that he sent, he is uh, pounding shots uh, over on the East Coast at the House of Blues, and he might be joining us a little bit later on the show. But as you heard, uh, you heard probably two familiar voices uh, in studio this week, and that's Hunter Atkins and Derek Fogel. Uh, guys, it's, uh, it's great to have you both here. Happy to be back. Derek, this is your second time. It is. I feel special. You are special. You know, we, we took care of it the first time. You wear a helmet while we do this podcast. You're very special. Yeah, you're right. But it's got the beards on the side of it. Which is really impressive. Like, you I, know, I just love that straw that you have coming down your double fisting right now. You have now. to search double for Double helmeting, them. right? Yeah, you, you have to search for them. I actually found this one in Panama City Beach. You know those dollar stores? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll tell you that story another time. All right, let's get into the Astros. All right, sounds good. Well, uh, Astros just got back from a 10-game uh, road trip. Went 8-2. and two. On paper, looks good. But when you look at it, Dallas Keuchel still on. He goes back on the DL with discomfort in his neck. I like that the Astros just extended their lead. They're off to an amazing start. They've got a double-digit lead in the AL West. But Keuchel, second stint on the 10-DA DL in less than a month. That has to be concerning, right? Yeah, definitely weird. Um, I think what's weirdest about it was that he was scratched reportedly from the team because of an illness. Like, he was sick. And then players reported him, quote, not looking good, which seemed to suggest that he, like, looks sick. But then the reason that he was put on the DL was because of his neck. I Very mysterious and strange. So but, they, they said discomfort in the neck. And last time they were more specific and said pinched nerve in the neck. It, it, uh, I mean, is, is it just the same weird? Thing? Is my point. I, it, I, don't, it I don't really add know. up to me. Why would, why would they know. try to mislead and say that he's sick? I don't know. If, I asked him. So I was in Arlington last week covering the team. And I asked Keiko after a start, and he says neck was fine. I mean, he looks great last, last weekend, and he told me he was fine, so I don't really know what the answer to any of it is. But AJ Hinch said that he was in and out of the dugout with sickness while in Arlington, though. So who, like, to shoot down the conspiracy theorists is why he said that, too. So mm-hmm. I don't know if he's actually sick, but that's what he said. AJ Hinch, apparently he was actually sick. As far as that goes for the pinched nerve, I don't maybe, know. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's just a coincidence, that they have, a coincidence that they happened at the same time. But the, the bigger picture is that you now have Keichel, Colin McHugh, Charlie Morton. Joe Musgrove is supposed to come back soon, but just for now, as of this recording, I mean, you know, it's their starting rotation on the DL. Yeah, 80% of your starting rotation is on the DL. Um, so it highlights, you know, this concern that was looming over the team coming out of spring training, which was the starting pitching depth. And up to this point, they've been gangbusters. They've been awesome. And I don't think it's time to panic at all. But I think the next nine games of this homestand, again, we're recording on, on Friday, so this nine-game homestand that's going to come up, um, it'll be interesting to see 
just how effective they are by the lack of starting pitching depth. You know, if they can keep it going. But how effective do the Astros need to be heading into the All-Star break? Because as of right now, they only play two teams above 500, and that's Boston and New York. So what we've seen from the offense averaging what Only six one of those teams is game, good anyway. Yeah, so. fair. But what we've seen is only uh, the Astros putting up these gaudy offensive numbers, six runs a game since I, I believe the early part of May. I mean, does it even matter? I mean, or, or is it going to tax the bullpen as we saw in Kansas City? Well, the thing is when you have multiple guys out of the rotation, you can usually say if there's one guy out, okay, Johnny Holstaff goes for X day. You know, you have that working for you. But another thing that might come into play here especially late is and I don't know if this is true but Lance McCullers might be on an innings limit based off of what happened last season I don't know if they're going to try and slow him down or limit him or even take back the reins but when you look at it that way then 100% of your starting rotation is in trouble just because you're going to have to start pulling back the reins on him after the all-star break which you'd think everyone especially how things are going now oh well he's your number two, no doubt, right after Keuchel. Your, your three guy is the only question. But really, near the end of the season, they might really pull him back so that they can have him for October. I don't know if they're going to do an innings limit, but that's something to be thought about too. So what would you do? Maybe in late July, early August, maybe have him skip every other start or maybe no, go to no. a six-man rotation? No, no, no. That's a way too radical. They would never do that. Yeah, I don't think that. But I would say come September, if you've already clinched, especially near the end, which, it, I mean, the Astros are going to do it pretty early. Let's just be real. Um, yeah, you're going to have a spot starter. They're not going to be too worried about momentum at that point. They're going to try and save him if he has an innings limit. I don't know if he does. I'm just bringing that up because he is an injury-prone type guy, just no, the way he throws. You're a little too zoomed in. Uh, to zoom out, the bigger point is the accumulative effect on the staff, meaning the starting staff and the bullpen. That's what we're talking about. If you don't have a group of quality starters that can consistently, as a fivesome, get deep into games, the accumulative snowball effect of you know, a tired bullpen is what can catch up with a team. That's what we're trying to say. So if you have a healthy staff and they keep winning and you know, Hinch is able to parse out his bullpen evenly in a methodical way, that's great. But the combination of maybe you bring up starters to replace the injured guys and those replacement starters are bad. And on top of that, Lance can't go more than maybe six you know, innings in a game or whatever. That's what we're trying to say, you know, like that, to, to, to tie it together. Um, I don't think that when you brought it before, is it really that big of a deal because they're only going to play two teams over 500 before the All-Star break? That's not really what I think any fan is thinking about. We're not, there's no... But it gives you time to rest and, you know, to get right, if you will. Uh, sure, sure. But this team and the fan base expect a World Series run, right? right? And that's the bigger you know, fear, is that if these guys are so fragile, right, if they are hurt right now, when they've only gotten two months into the friggin' workload, uh, like that's got to worry a lot of fans, I would think. That's a fair point. And, you know, we've seen some guys come up and make some starts, uh, Brad Peacock being one. He's uh, been excellent. He's, excellent. he's looked great, you know, the first four or five excellent. innings. And then it looks like he's trying to build up that stamina of the pitch count. But if you look at his numbers, uh, he's got 13.5 strikeouts per nine innings, which ranks fourth in the American League. That's just an insane number. He's He's been... He's been phenomenal, uh, but the Astros do need depth in that rotation. 
I'm curious. We've heard so much speculation and rumor talks of guys like Quintana, Garrett Cole. With the injury concerns, is it going to force the Astros to make a move prior to the trade deadline? Or, or do we see a move coming, I don't know, in the next few weeks? I don't know. I, I just Before you jump in, Derek, I'll, I'll just say from you know following Jeff Luno and working with him a little bit, he's he's really hard to predict. But the one thing that we can all see is he is really patient. So if you're asking if he's going to be moved by these injury concerns, you know, you have a handful of guys that are on the 10-day DL. Keuchel, Musgrove, Morton. It's way too soon, I think, for Jeff to actually feel panicked. That's my guess. McHugh is going to be a little more of a bonus and... He, too, I'm guessing, is somebody Jeff wants to see pitch before he decides just how deep into the trade market he wants to dive. And that's the other thing is you don't want to show your hand. And everybody knows, okay, you've got four or five starters out right now. We could pick his pocket and and really get something for whoever he wants. So patience, as you mentioned, being his strong suit is really good because he needs to wait this one out. And it's probably going to be one of those like midnight deadline deals, something I would, I would weigh it that way because you don't want to show your hand and act desperate. And that's something that Luno won't do as Hunter outlined, hopefully, because everyone's thinking, Oh, Francis Marte getting the call, the, the top prospect for the Astros, they must be looking to trade him. Mm, I wouldn't go that far. No, he's the best option they have to bring up for four missing guys. Right. You know, they brought up, Three pitchers before they decided to go with Marte. And they, Marte Martez. Was it, I'm sorry. I've heard it both ways. I guess we'll get the official pronunciation. No, it's Martez. Is it Martez? I guess when he comes to do a game, we'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. Either way, pump the brakes on the trade talks just because guys are, you know, they're not dropping like flies exactly. You don't have a single arm injury, if you notice that. A lat strain is hardly an arm injury. Musgrove, I guess he does. This have, is where you can you can actually bring your expertise to us as a former college pitcher. A little bit, a little bit. The neck is just a nagging thing. Same with the lat; that's something that gets tight. I mean, Musgrove. He's had shoulder discomfort. Yeah, that's that's more so like he got a cortisone shot though last week, and the reason why he skipped his last start or why his throwing program was delayed a little bit is because he was experiencing soreness from the cortisone shot. Yeah, and that's that comes along with it. Cortisone shots are the worst. I have never had one, but I've seen guys do it. That I had is, one. It was awesome. Really? I had no pain through normally. It was it was great. You Good know, now you. it now makes sense why Kobe Bryant was able to play so long. I just cortisone shots. The German doctor, Italian doctor, whoever. That's different. Was. <laughs> that's different. That's, that's different. That's uh, blood spinning. No. But anyway. But I don't know. I think they'll be fine. It's everyone's kind of worried about Keuchel just because he's been chewing up so many innings, and you know, obviously. Cy Young talk is surrounding him, no doubt. But a neck injury before the All Star break, yeah. Like I said, pump the brakes. And it, I, when you when you talk about Keiko eating up innings, they haven't been strenuous innings, which I think has been kind of helpful for him. I mean, he's nine and zero with a sub two ERA. He's just been vintage Dallas Keiko, if you will, which is everything Astros fans wanted before the season is just to have his health. But, it, it, you know, we've talked a lot about the pitching. Uh, we, we know what, you know, the holes are right now. I guess the, the weaknesses, if you will, with this team, even though they're playing 700 baseball. But when you look at the offense, I mean, they've just been playing at an elite level the last few weeks. I mean, Carlos Correa is just doing his thing. Springer is on a hot streak, mashed uh, several home runs, was named AL player of the week. Uh, Altuve doing Altuve things. And okay. I, I 
you played baseball. You, you cover baseball, Hunter. I played it, bro. Come okay, on. okay. You, uh, Derek, you played. Derek it played at, college baseball, which is more legit. But level. don't act like I just came from the cage today. As I'm showing these guys right now, the blister torn off my palm. Were you holding the the rail when you were holding up your uh, voice recorder? Or <laughs> okay, but anyways, Altuve, his numbers, his splits between home and away just baffle me. He's hitting like what over 400 on the road and like under 300 at home. I mean. What's going on with that? Is he is he trying too hard with that short porch in left field? That's one of those things where people want to try and like equivocate it to something like that, but there's really no reason for it. Like you want an explanation, like oh he is trying to pull it, but there's really no reason for it. It's just one of those goofy things. That's why there's an element of randomness in baseball that we right. that nobody can account for. That's it right there. I really don't know how else to describe it. It's just weird. That's that's totally fair. So Hunter, you were in. Uh, Arlington this past week covering the Rangers series and they just looked really really effective on offense you know just there's no disputing that yeah. you know you know it's I, you know, I, like I, I I stop you from even asking me about the Arlington series because it feels irrelevant now to be honest but okay I, in in terms of relevancy the Astros do play the Rangers coming up this week how much momentum how much looser I guess is the club knowing that they've taken six out of seven games against the Rangers right now, and in the last two years, they've absolutely struggled. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're su- they're really confident. And the Rangers also readily admit that the Astros are a better team. Like, um, I don't know if it was the Saturday game or the Friday, maybe the Friday rain delay game, but Martin Perez, uh, whichever game he lost, I think it was the Friday game, you know, Dower, dejected at his locker after the game. And I think one of the quotes I got from him was he just like matter of factly just shrugged and said, best team in the American League. You know, there's something undeniable about how much better the Astros are than the Rangers and every team in the AL West. Um, Yeah, the confidence is is teeming. It was interesting. I was at the ballpark today on Friday. And even just restoring the confidence with one win, you know what I mean? Like they dropped two in a row. They bounced back with one last night. Sort of a dramatic one to score uh, five in the ninth off of Altuve. Altuve's a home run to spark, to spark it. Uh, yeah, I mean, they have the confidence of being the best team in the league on a World Series path. Yeah, I, I know as a baseball fan that has followed the Astros since the early 90s when you know Bagwell and Biggio were just getting their start, uh, it's kind of fun to watch and to see this team, especially after struggling for so long, uh, you know, the last decade after, you know, that, that nice run in 04 and 05. But both of you guys, you're not from Houston. You cover the Astros for your career. How much does it help your job, both of you, covering a team that is on this hot streak and just playing at such a high level? I mean, does it make it more enjoyable to go to the office each day? We, we should preface. I don't think we formally... I properly introduced Derek. We did last week, two weeks ago. Well, for those who are, who, who are maybe new listeners, Fair Derek point. works for CBS Radio. So, Derek, easier to cover this team when they're winning? Like, no, no kidding. The best thing about a winning team is that everyone wants to talk. When you're in a, a locker room that is losing or even just c- coming off a loss, like covering the Texans, which I do a lot too, uh, so if they they've lost... frequently, frequently <laughs> have... Uh, yeah. Interceptions. Yeah. If it's if things aren't going well, like you know it. Everyone's happier when you win. It's just easier to talk to anybody. It doesn't affect us though. Like I know Hunter's gonna say it doesn't matter to us if they win. 
we just want a good story to come of it. It sounds selfish. We don't care if they win, but we want something good to talk about from it, whether it's from a win or a loss. But it makes it a lot easier because guys are willing to say more things when they're winning. Nobody wants to talk when you're losing. Everybody's mad. That's a fair point. But you know, three years ago here in Houston, you could buy $5 tickets right behind the dugout two hours before the game. I mean, it, it, the stadiums were empty. You know, The advertised crowd would be something like 13,000 at the gate, when in actuality it was probably five or 6,000. Is this one of your questions, like, is it good for the Rockets? <laughs> no, but I'm just saying, like, <laughs> from your perspective when you're covering the game, does the atmosphere have anything to do with, you know, the press box and just the overall excitement. Cause I, I know when I go to a game and it's 40,000 people, the excitement level just makes it that much gotta, better from a fan's perspective. I, gotta be honest, I wouldn't know though, because I haven't been around long enough. Like, right. For instance, all right. So John McClain, who is the Houston Chronicles, awesome football writer, AKA the general, right? He also has been a diehard Astros fan since 1962 when they were the Colt 45s. And he has been giving the fans a really hard time about not stuffing Minute Maid Park. And that, it's bad. I mean, so, so what was the last game you were at, and what, did, what was the crowd like? Uh, last game I went to was uh, the Friday night game against Detroit. Um, and I would say the crowd was probably 33,000. I'm going Wednesday night against the Rangers. I mean, a sellout's 40. So a sellout's 42. Your, your, question also isn't, your question isn't necessarily about literally a sellout. You're asking about the environment, right? right? And like the vibe. I, it seems delightful. I don't know if I would go so far as to say it seems you know, like ravenous or rowdy or intense. Like As we're doing this podcast, in the background, we can see that there's this college baseball game, this epic 6-6 game in the bottom of the 14th between Davidson and Texas A&M. And the Texas A&M stadium looks like the movie Gladiator. It looks frightening and crazy. <laughs> but, so Minute Maid Park isn't like that, but I have to concede that I don't know the fan base well enough to know if it can get to that point. Yeah, that, that's a fair take. I think it can, especially during the playoff season when you have all the bandwagon fans jump on and want to you know, pretend that they were there from the start. But. I wouldn't say that's bandwagon, though, right? I mean, come on, give people a break. They, they want to see the games that matter more. So end of the season, you're probably going to have more people show up Maybe. based on what the Texans do. I think you could have more people show up. I don't know. Even with whatever the Texans do, Houston's all of a sudden really become a baseball town, right? Really? Like, you get that sense? I do. When... When you have a winning team that, I mean, they've been in the toilet for a majority of the last 10 years, right, after 0405, it wakes up a city. So people are much more attentive to not only the Astros, but baseball as a whole, because it's like reinvigorated the dream of a World Series. You know what I mean? I, don't, I think that is something that's intangible that only baseball has. You can have a really good football team but it still doesn't have the charisma mm. of a winning baseball team. Is I could be wrong. Is it because of the length of the season and just the investment, the time that you spend following ah, Houston's, team? Houston's not a great fan city. You know, it doesn't have... I think the Texans bring out the most diehards, by far. And the Rockets... In the Rockets' playoff atmosphere was pretty great when they were playing well. But otherwise, I've, I haven't gotten the sense in my short time here that the fans here are you know, like that devoted, that knowledgeable, that interested... Certainly by comparison to the most ravenous fans across the sport, whether it's Oakland Raiders fans or you know Boston Red Sox fans, stuff like that. That's, a, that's an interesting take, but I will tell you, Hunter, I, I went to two of the Rockets playoff games this year, and I was kind of underwhelmed hmm. with the crowd. I went to 
believe it was game two of the Oklahoma City series where the Rockets were losing for the majority of the game, at least the first half, and then came back and ultimately won in the fourth quarter. What was the vibe like at the end? At the end, it was great, but it, yeah. that was just the last two minutes of the game. Yeah, people didn't show up on time for all these games. All right, so yeah. Austin, you got to blame you know the brethren. I think I think part of that is, of your is, city. is Houston fans. I mean, this is the fourth largest city, about to be the third largest city in the United States, and they can't even show up to uh, you know a playoff mm-hmm. game at an at a reasonable time. The Astros aren't selling out. There's no excuse from a fan's perspective why if, if you really do care about this team, go to a game. I mean, tickets aren't crazy expensive you can get a game ticket on a friday night watch fireworks for 20 bucks sitting they got shake shack and torches now hunter i would even argue that the texans don't have the most diehard fans i would say absolutely the astros do the texans have only been here for 15 years i think there are a lot of no i think there are a lot of houstonians that care more about the oilers past than they do about the texans future yes i think the love you blue era has so many more fans than you know the current disaster of a football team that we've seen in the last 15 years no doubt this is texas it's football it's the nfl but i think that their absence and and the texans i don't know they're they've been disappointing at times to people that that fan base has been really quick to turn on them whereas when the astros were bad we had people sticking around saying well they're going to be really good soon and it, and it happened they went from the valley all the way to the mountaintop yeah, fair point, and hopefully the uh, the Astros can make it to the mountaintop uh, this season and uh, bring a World Series title here to Houston. I know some people at the Chronicle have already been planning uh, parade routes. Uh, Hunter, I know that you're not part of that group. <laughs> what? Obviously. Yeah, what is this group? I, no, I have to. I, it's it's funny. I have to be so adamant about divorcing myself from this. Every time I end up getting roped into like somebody assuming that I'm rooting for them to win the World Series, I I cannot. You know, it's like it'd be like weird and. Right. subjective and make me sound like a homer, which I'm certainly not. Um, I think that's pro- that's professional. That's what you should do. Yeah, but I also don't want to sound pompous about it. Right. It's just a weird vibe. Like You can't have somebody covering this team legitimately and rooting for them. No, I'm and, with you. Yeah, we all, yeah. We're, we, we all are fans of certain teams. I get it. Like I, I'm not afraid to say that I love the New York Knicks. I'm not afraid to say it. I'm sad to say it, but it's true, right? Luckily, I don't have to cover the New York Knicks right now, but... Yeah, I'm not like I'm not actively rooting for this team to win or lose, right? It's awesome that I get to be there and cover it. It's much more helpful and interesting when they win. It's been an amazing magical season so far. Um, but no matter what happens over the next nine games, before the All Star break, after the All Star break, Derek and I will be there just taking it all in. Quickly, I would like to say that the Cubs were in town for the final spring training game of the year, and I'm from Chicago. I'm a huge Cubs fan, and that was probably the worst job I've ever done in covering a team <laughs> because I, w- I just went there to go into the Cubs clubhouse. Actually, I played with Javier Baez's brother in college. Humble so brag. I, yeah, humble brag. I went and, and talked to him, but yeah, it was, uh, I mean, I was a total fan just Talking with Cubs Listen, players. I gotta, so. My cousin Nate Fryman was the cleanup hitter and first baseman for the Israeli <laughs> national team. Oh. Okay. So you're not I, the I only can't person. Like one up you guys. You're not the only person here with ties to <laughs> professional baseball. Tommy okay, Topper Derek? over there. Tommy Topper, Hunter Atkins. <laughs> Let's finish on the Astros. Because there's just no chance anybody's that interested in this. All right. Um, going into the weekend series against the Angels. Uh, I still th- I still think the Astros should be favored in every single game, despite their pitching troubles, despite everything we talked about before, which is much more about big picture. Um, there have been bullpen questions. The bullpen has been taxed, but the main thing to focus on is the core has been very good. 
Giles had a really bad game, one really bad game. Situation he's not familiar with coming in for a four out save. I mean, no, oh, that's BS. I don't, I don't buy that. No, like the four out save. That's not what it is. He, you can have an off night, Derek. You know, chime in. Like he, he hung his slider a few times, more than a few actually, four or five. But his slider this season still batters are hitting one fifty something against absurd. his slider. Yeah, so it's fine. Like it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a concern in the short term. This weekend series, I think they'll be fine. I will be interested to see over the over the nine games, the nine game homestand. On the other hand, um, how the other guys in that bullpen do. Like I'm not concerned about Chris Davinsky, Will Harris, Ken Giles, but you're going to have to put out dun dun dun, Luke Gregerson much more often. I mean, uh, he, fans have been not have not been confident in him. He's, he kind of baffles me because he looked good in a World Baseball Classic. Really good. He had four saves, I think. And but he just hasn't found it. it. It seems like he had that one inning where he got roughed up for what was it, seven no, runs? He, no, he had a streak where um, he gave up runs in three out of five outings, I think. Um, but it, I'm just trying to look forward, and like that'll be an, it'll be an interesting test for him this week. Uh, James Hoyt has been spotty. He's been better in really close games. He's been bad in games where he's had a three-run lead. He, uh, I talked to him about it. He said something like, you know, uh, he tends to focus and be more intense. It'll be interesting to see if he can step up. So, But the main core of the bullpen, people shouldn't be that worried about. I think the auxiliary guys, this will be their greatest test. Uh, Tony Sipp has been basically pointless this year. Um, I think Derek Last brought up... Last few years. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see how he does. Um Everybody should still be depending or counting on George Springer, Carlos Correa, Altuve. Springer, I think he's on a streak. He's hitting 440 something during. I got. I got to look it up. Actually, I don't. I don't want to mess it up. But let me, let me look at it real quick. He. Um, I can give you something to look out sorry. for. Sorry, Springer's hitting 400 in his last bit, almost 50 at bats. Altuve's hitting 440 in his last 40 at bats, basically. So those guys should stay hot because the Angels pitching is, is so inadequate. Something to look out for, I think, for me, is knowing that you're going to dig into the bullpen a lot. Bullpen pitchers slow down the game. That's naturally what they do. Um, they take their time. They, they have their, a weird rhythm to when they pitch. That can hurt your defense sometimes. Mm-hmm. And A.J. Hinch has put a ton of emphasis in ground balls before the game and this and that and making sure that their defense is sharp. And for the next week or two that's something that you're going to need to pay attention to because when you use the bullpen a lot they slow down the game a lot it makes fielders lackadaisical and this is a really good defensive team no doubt right between Correa and Altuve up the middle but it you kind of get lulled to sleep I can speak to that as being a starter I always tried to work really quickly and Dallas Keuchel does a really great job in that Lance McCullers a little slower but he strikes so many guys out it really doesn't matter which by the way we didn't get to his his start against Kansas City um, yeah, really, really no smart. The seventh inning. I mean, really smart. He was using his changeup a lot. I mean, it's nothing what his scouting report had said at the beginning of the season. I think that's why he's having so much success. So that's why we brought you on the show, so you could just bring that home run analysis for like ninety seconds right there. I hate <laughs> that that was like thirty minutes into the show. I wish that let off at the top. But sorry. But yeah. So that's a McCullers. Uh, he had a hell of a start on Thursday night in Kansas City. Took a no hitter into the seventh inning. Uh, I believe gave up what two hits overall. But he really came in at a good point when the bullpen had struggled the last two nights being taxed with us. Uh, several innings as a result of short starts and he kind of bridged that gap to Friday night. You can see how much he's maturing because he seriously will go three pitch strikeout on a guy, maybe three pitch, four pitch strikeout on the next guy. And then with two outs or even in between that, 
he'll go 2-0 or 3-0 on a guy and get really frustrated with himself, walk him. It's a, it actually happened in the first inning, and then I think the sixth, yeah. where yeah. he strikes out a guy in three pitches to start the inning, then he walks the next guy, gets to a full count, walks him, and then he has to dial it back, get his mind in the right place, take a deep breath, step back on the mound, and then he'll go strike somebody out, get the ground ball double play. Like You can see him maturing because he understands he, he gets ahead of himself. He'll want to keep going, keep going. And if you look, actually, the game against the Royals, he didn't locate many curveballs for strikes. They were chasing him. The Royals are one of the worst offensive teams in the league. You've got Alex Gordon, who's supposed to be great, and he's, I don't think he's hitting his weight. It's like 170-something. But regardless, they chased a lot. He actually didn't locate his curveball that well, and he got away with it because his changeup was good, and the Royals are bad. Yeah, it's nice to see him develop that changeup a little bit more and get a third pitch into his arsenal a little bit. But... uh Kind of the big news this week. And Hunter, this is something that uh, you approached me about discussing on the show, and that's uh, Comey. Yeah, I just thought that um, it had been a while since we talked politics on the show. I don't think I've spoken about politics on the show since maybe the week after the election right. or week two. But yeah, I was opinion about it. Um, I really wanted to get Jeremy's take. I know he's not here, but... So we can give Jeremy a call. I know that he's like four shots in right now. Then we definitely will be giving Jeremy a call. All right, let's let's call him up. All right, so Hunter wanted to talk politics on the show. And, of course, a big story this week is uh, the Comey hearings in Washington, D.C. Of course, a lot of it dealt with uh, speculation with Donald Trump, whether or not there was collusion. And, of course, Comey being fired uh, in the month of May, uh, testified in front of the Senate. And uh, Hunter came here wanting to talk Comey. And, unfortunately, Jeremy... Paxson, one of our co-hosts, is in Boston, so we had to make an emergency call. Uh, Jeremy, I know you're at the House of Blues right now. Uh, you've had a few vodka tonics, but tell us, what is going on with Comey? What is going on with Comey? Yeah, I'm, I'm like rolling three deep right now, so I'm, I'm thoroughly ready to talk about this topic. No, uh, so Comey, I, I, I don't think she gave Democrats what they wanted, and I don't really think he gave Republicans what they had hoped for either. Um, I, I'm not really sure what this does for the president. I don't think you're going to get an obstruction of justice charge out of any of his testimony. That being said, though, Trump does look pretty um, unprofessional, so to speak. I think if you're going to take Comey at his word, he just it definitely he's definitely an outsider and just kind of didn't know what some of the protocols were in terms of how you talk to government officials whose obligations to the law and not to uh, whoever's in charge. So I, I think regardless of your political uh, bent on this, you're not going to get what you wanted. And I don't think anything is going to come out of this for Trump other than him just looking worse than he already has. Yeah, I, uh, no, I, you concisely put it better than I would have. I think the central point is also to focus on obstruction of justice and just how hard it is to prove that. I mean, this whole scenario is unprecedented, but still... Um, when you talk about, you know, Democrats aren't going to get what they wanted, uh, just simply from the standpoint of justice and obstruction of justice, we're still really far from that. It would have to be so explicit. So I'm not sure, Jeremy, how much you know, productivity really came out of this, do you think? Um, I, you know, I, I think it was elucidating to the degree that I, I think that um, Comey definitely did, he, he gave the media, the, the opponents of Trump in the media, he gave them some red meat. And telling them, like, you know, I feel uncomfortable with Trump. 
I didn't record my conversations with Obama because I didn't really worry about the legality of what he would ask me for with Trump. You know, he said he, like, I, I, I remember seeing a headline like, he's creepy, I don't want to be in the same room with him, I feel like I need to write this down because this might not be okay. Um, I, I, I do think that, you know, his opponents in the media got rid of me. However, I don't know if that moves the bar at all in terms of, you know, their objectives. And if, if you're talking about productivity and what they wanted, I just don't think it moves the needle anywhere. That being said, um, you know, as I was saying earlier, I, I just think that it sort of paints Trump in the quarter as kind of an outsider, but an outsider, you know, who, who really, really didn't understand how things worked. I mean, when you think about what Trump said to Comey, it was sort of like, it was, you know, I, I would imagine him as a businessman saying this to subordinate, and that would be okay in the world of business. But in government, where a lawman has an obligation to the law and not to his superior, um, it's not okay to ask him that. So, um, you know, I think it just depends on how you're looking at what happened. But again, I don't, I don't think this moves the needle anywhere for anybody. Yeah, Jeremy on Vodka Tonic is the best version of Jeremy we've, we've ever had. Um, you're, you're spot, you've been spot on. I wanted to... Um, I want to share an anecdote, actually, that piggybacks off of exactly what you just said. I was talking to, and this is all about, you know, what you want out of this Comey situation. And it sucks that it's become so adversarial and that it's a matter of, like, weird subjectivity when it should be about objectivity and obstruction of justice and just what's right. But, you know, our politics have really been so divisive, there's nothing objective about anything anymore. So... The anecdote I want to offer is that I was talking to a friend of mine, and she's from New York City, where I'm from, and her dad um, is a big supporter of Trump. And I said, and I was explaining to her, she's frankly just not that interested in politics, but I was explaining the Comey situation. And I kept it simple. I said, you know, Comey was leading an investigation into Russia, and then Donald Trump fired him, likely because he felt threatened by that investigation. And then that is really immoral and corrupt for a president to do. So I said, why don't you go tell your dad that and see what he says? Now, I'd be curious. And she, uh, so she does, and she gets back to me, and she says, that's what her dad wanted. Good. That her dad wanted a guy like Comey gone, even though it's heinously unethical. And I thought that was really sad and disgusting. Um, anybody on this podcast can jump in on that, but that, that really, to me... I thought was an interesting on the ground anecdote to summarize where our politics are at. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny you say that. So I, I think about Comey's testimony, and I, I think about the, actually the subject of Jim Comey in general in two ways. I think about the Jim Comey the Democrats hated back in the fall because he reopened the investigation, the Hillary Clinton email scandal. You know, literally weeks before the election, and I heard. I mean, literally, we have these tweets from Democrat senators, congressmen, media figures juxtaposed to one another from the fall as opposed to now. There, they're hailing him as a villain, and now they're hailing him as a hero. And so, you know, Jim Comey is, is sort of a he's kind of a soldier of fortune in this in this scenario. He's not really in one camp or the other. But I, I think for people to characterize his firing as purely politically motivated, I think that's a little short sighted. He he was not loved by Democrats or Republicans in general. Which I don't know. Maybe that's a good thing if you're looking at uh, who should be in charge. You know, you don't want one guy that's had allegiance to one or the other, but I think he had done enough for himself to that put him at odds with figures in both parties where his firing was not only justified, but I think it was necessary because he really, back in July, if you were to ask any Republican on the Hill 
what they thought of Comey, you know, he essentially indicted Hillary Clinton without indicting her. You know, he goes over all this list of things that she did wrong and all these things that she did that were inappropriate with her emails and how, uh, how much of a risk that she posed to the, the, you know, the security apparatus of the United States, and then he just decided to not indict her. I mean, that just infuriated conservatives, and then what he did in the fall infuriated Democrats. So I think there was plenty of reason to fire him apart from the Russia investigation. Now, that being said, um, you know, I, I think whatever is going to happen with Russia is now in the hands of, you know, the new investigator that really Comey, um, I don't want to say hand-picked, but he definitely, um, you know, I, I think that he's got confidence in the guy that's heading it up now. All right, so Derek, uh, we haven't had you on the show before uh, talking politics, but uh, you kind of said something interesting to me before we started recording, and it was that uh, you had no interest in Comey at all. But tell us why this week kind of took you by surprise. Yeah, this did. I don't have a huge interest in politics, but I found myself watching this for an hour and 45 minutes. When I saw that it was on, I went ahead and I I tuned in and I was all about it. And this was so polarizing, I think, because this is the, the Watergate of our time. Like, we haven't seen anything like this. That was unprecedented in the time for Nixon. This is the exact same thing with a bit of a different president, no doubt. But suddenly you have people that really aren't that interested finding a way to to watch and to be interested in it and wanting to learn about it and then aside from that also it had its entertainment and john mccain having a stroke on national television i mean i think we learned that politicians can (laughs) fall off a cliff just like running backs do after the age of 30 it's a very uh interesting take and accurate and uh jeremy i know you're in boston right now house of blues but i i want to let you go i mean you're you're on uh vacation right now but before we do i mean derek just had a really good point i mean people that aren't interested were interested uh just because of the dynamic of what's happening so my question for you would be moving forward what does this all mean uh is the russia investigation over i don't think it is i think that uh you know firing Comey probably makes the FBI want to investigate Trump. So what happens next? Uh, what happens next? Honestly, I think nothing. You know, anyone who is, is pushing this, um, I, I have to ask them exactly what are the charges and who is guilty. Um, as of now, the, the FBI and the, the investigators headed up by Robert Mueller, they have absolutely nothing right now. And so and if they don't have anything at this point, I, I'm, I'm concerned that this is just going to serve as um, you know, just a, a big spot of negative PR for the president that's going to keep him from accomplishing his you know, objectives, which is, I think, precisely what the Democrats want. So as long as there is some question of what happened during the election with Russia, uh, the Democrats and their allies in the media are going to continue to push this narrative, keep the president from getting what he wants. Now, that being said, do I, what do I think this actually, like, what effect does this have on him as president? I think it's next to nothing. I don't think He's not getting impeached. He's not getting thrown out of office. He's not stepping down. I don't think this is Watergate 2.0. I think most of this is smoke and mirrors on the part of people who want him out of office and who think his election is illegitimate anyway. So um, I don't think this really moves the needle at all, like I said earlier. But at the same time, I think this speaks to his uh, inexperience and his true outsider status as a politician. You know, you, you think about everything that Trump built himself to his constituents coming into office, and yet he is a true outsider, but to a fault. So I think that's the real takeaway from this, is that if he doesn't get anything accomplished, it's because he was willingly ignorant of the process. Uh, No, the takeaway from this is that he's thoroughly corrupt, but there just isn't enough evidence of it. 
Well, and I, I mean, that's a debatable point is whether he, you know, it, it, you, know you can look at it that way. But I would, yeah, again, like, where, like, where's the evidence? Where's the smoking gun? I mean, you'll remember that Comey also talks about Loretta Lynch and there are Republicans that are trying to advocate for an obstruction of justice charge on her trying to keep Comey from investigating, investigating Hillary Clinton's email. Uh, Jeremy, I did not expect you. Wait, I did not expect you at all to defend President Donald Trump in this matter. I'm not. I'm not defending him, but I'm saying there's not enough evidence to to, to push the needle either way. No, only yeah, you're yeah. But I know. But you you asked you asked something along the lines of like, what's the smoking gun? Common sense is the smoking gun. Just because we cannot prove it doesn't mean that we don't know that this guy has been a rotten scoundrel in the White House the whole time. The point is he got away with it. No, no. If you feel like he's a rotten scoundrel, like, that's fine. People have felt like Donald Trump has been a rotten scoundrel ever since he got into broadcast television. But I don't think that the substance of the investigation is going to yield anything that's going to put him in a position where he has to either resign or get impeached. I just don't think it's going to happen. So, you know, unless he, you know, inappropriately acts with an intern, uh, you know, nothing, nothing is going to happen. That being said, he does look bad. I do think that his allies, both in what limited allies he has in the media, and I think his constituents are sort of shaken by this whole thing, but there's an upside for him. He can spin it like, you know what, I just didn't know. I'm a businessman. I was asking, to, I, I was asking what I thought was a subordinate to do what I would have done in a business. And he can spin it to his supporters and make it a positive. But I think nationally speaking, if you're looking at the swing voters that he needs to win in 2020, I don't think this bodes well for him. Well, Jeremy, we definitely appreciate you uh, joining us on the podcast today. And uh, thanks for calling in for Boston. And if we're talking about 2020, I still don't think Trump's going to make it to 2020. I mean, I've said it numerous times on this podcast, uh, but, you know, we'll find out. You know what, though? This is the same podcast that unanimously, including yours truly, that said that Trump had no chance against Hillary. So I would not count the guy out yet. To be fair, I said Trump had no chance against the Republicans. I didn't say that he didn't have a chance against Hillary. Well, I, I definitely said he had no chance against Hillary in the general. But that being said, I'm not counting this guy out for nothing. I, I saw something happen in November that I don't think any of us have seen ever. So whatever happens is going to be interesting. But you should definitely tune in here for the best analysis of the election. Yeah, certainly the drunkest analysis. <laughs> go go, tilt a few back for us, Jeremy. Okay. All right, guys. I, I, I got to head out. The concert's starting, so um, wish I could be there. All right. Well, Jeremy, we appreciate you calling in, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Have fun in Boston. Love you. Kisses. Bye. Thanks, bye. So interesting stuff uh, from Jeremy dialing in from Boston. Uh, Hunter. Uh, He's you, tilted. You, you he got is... a little animated. At, at some points, but I, I was inter- I was entertained. Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess I'm showing my colors a little bit. <laughs> your, your colors, my colors, the colors that I bleed, the way that I lean. Uh, I happen to have thought that what I thought that Jeremy's point. Of, I, I'm still flummoxed about it all, but it did sound. I'm glad that I challenged Jeremy on it and he clarified it. But it sounded like he was defending Donald Trump to a degree that made it sound like Donald Trump was exonerated. And my whole point was that just because James Comey did not offer enough evidence for there to be obstruction of justice charges does not mean that Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, has not been an unethical bully. Yeah, that's totally fair. What makes me most uncomfortable is when they asked him, do you think that that Donald Trump had anything to do with the 
Russian interference in the election, he said, I cannot comment that on that in an open forum. That oh. was awkward because that's, that's like an indirect yes, essentially, right. which you don't want to frame that because, okay, even if it's a no, he probably still can't answer. But that was uncomfortable. I squirmed. Yeah, look. Uh, uh, Are you one of those people that when you're watching something that's awkward on television, you kind of get fidgety too? I'm one of those people. No, nah, I don't get awkward. Oh, that's me. Ever. Oh, I was uncomfortable. Seriously. I'll urinate myself and not feel awkward. <laughs> Good for you. That's yeah. a little. That's a little much information. But uh, I, I did think that uh, it, it was good to have Jeremy on, and I think he sounds good after drinking four shots, three drinks. Better. Yeah. He used the word elucidate. Yeah, we should do that more often with Jeremy. Just, just get him really drunk, hammered, and talking about yeah, politics. It actually reminds. It should me be of, its own podcast. So it reminds me of his twenty-first birthday when uh, he thought that everyone in the room was taking shots of Everclear. Oh no! Yeah. Everyone was just taking water shots except Jeremy. <laughs> wow. They did unintentionally just to make him get drunk. Yeah. Oh, my. It God. was weirder because it was a family event. Like, it was, it, was, it, was, it was, yeah, that was the craziest part. It was like, it was, he was with his Nana and his parents. Getting yeah, trashed with the vicious. family is, is no good. It's like watching Step Brothers with your family, which I've done. <laughs> really awkward. All right. Fair point. But uh, <laughs> where are we? Where have we gone? <laughs> yeah. Get back to the road. But, uh, Guys, it's been fun having you both on the uh, the podcast uh, this week. And uh, for people that want to follow your coverage, uh, whether it's on CBS Sports or Houston Chronicle, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you? Derek, we'll start with you. At Fogel said what? F-O-G-E-L said what? Hunter, where are you at? Well, just first, fans can always remember Derek's last name because of Jared Fogel. Please right. don't tie it into that. If you're going to tie it into something, do super bad because I don't want to be totally linked to a pedophile. totally discussed this two weeks ago. Yeah, just thought I'd remind everybody. Don't link um, me to a pedophile. Yeah, so fans can find me. Any listeners can it. find my work. No, one, we're good, Derek. No, no, one uh, no, can, no, no, no. So I spell it differently. At Hunter Atkins no thirty five. That's at Twitter at Hunter Atkins thirty five, uh, and uh, you know, Houston Chronicle everywhere in that paper. I have a pretty big story coming out um, about the video games that the players play in the clubhouse. Interesting. And you scared everyone away from my Twitter. Thanks. Now everyone thinks I'm related to a pedophile. Well, well done. We haven't, I mean, we don't know. This is sort know of like a Comey situation. Oh, All right, anyway, Austin, I got to go. Can we? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, guys, I uh, appreciate you stopping by the studio this week. And if you want to follow our work, just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And on behalf of my co host this week, Derek Fogel, Hunter Atkins, my name is Austin Staten. We'll see you next week. But wait, there's more. And uh, to our listeners who follow us on our Facebook page, Twitter page, Instagram, all that good stuff, we're kind of changing things up a little bit. And this is actually a second recording of our outro because game four of the NBA Finals took place on Friday night. And uh, Hunter and I just had to get back on the line and discuss the finals and what happened. We all thought that it was going to be a sweep. We all thought the Warriors were going to uh, clinched their second title in three years. And Hunter, it's 1140 on Friday night. I guess we don't have anything better to do at this time, but that was a hell of a game. It was amazing. And there was, I can't imagine anything I would have wanted to do more than watch that game. Um, you know, I still think that the Warriors are going to win this series, but that's okay. That was kind of a foregone conclusion that we had this game, this incredible back and forth with awesome physical play and crazy bad refereeing and gesticulations from every single player on the court and technical fouls that were messed up and awesome offensive rebounding and cr- like just 
a lights-out shooting night for the entire Cavs team, to me, that redeemed the series just enough for me to go into the offseason feeling okay, right? We were all, I think, as the NBA fan community, complaining about how, you know, these playoffs sucked and uh, the Warriors dominating was really boring. I still think they're going to win, but this game was totally worth it. It was, it was, it was, it was amazing. What um, I want to go, I want to kind of go in chronological order of whatever stood out to you. Can we start? Let's start the first quarter. What do you remember? I, I have a whole list prepared of things. Yeah, I observations, mean, yeah, including I, at some point we got to talk about Odell Beckham's white sweatsuit <laughs> and how I didn't understand. You know, he was sitting not in his chair, but on the this like the the backrest of his chair the whole time. Yeah, so we got to get into that, which was just I thought really. Like egotistical, not that we should be surprised, but that was kind of ridiculous. Anyway, first quarter, what do you remember? Like, what's that to you? Well, so for, before we get to that first quarter, real quick, uh, you had just mentioned that uh, we still think that the, the Warriors are going to win the series. And yes, yes, we are kind of gambling degenerates on this podcast, at least myself. Don't say we. Yeah, what myself. Are you I'll, I'll, I would I'll never, I would never do that, not because I think it's wrong, but because I would lose. <laughs> well, I, to be fair, to be transparent with our, our, our listeners, I was up. 160 this week and i lost it all tonight based on uh, the warriors <laughs> so i'm now at zero dollars for the week but uh when you look at game five which takes place on monday night uh cavaliers eight and a half point underdog and the over under is currently set at 231 and a half that's awesome which would be awesome. the highest line for an nba finals game in league history but uh specifically to this game some things that stood out to me, I mean, obviously just the numbers, NBA record 49 points in the first quarter for the Cavaliers. They shot 24-45 from three-point land. Seven of those came in the first quarter. I mean, they just, they knew that their backs were against the wall and they just came out firing. And I think I was a little bit hesitant that they were gonna going to be able to sustain that pace uh, after watching game three, because you'll recall in game three, uh, they had a seven-point lead in the fourth quarter, yeah. absolutely blew yeah. it. They didn't score in the last three minutes of the game. So my thought process was, okay, they started fast. Can they sustain this? I, I think Kyrie, I think LeBron, they've played too many minutes. They don't have the depth that the Warriors have. They're going to be gassed in the second half. Warriors are going to come back and blow this thing out. That's why I lost all that money is because I like kind of <laughs> I got, a little, I listen, I got I, a little I never, cocky. I didn't doubt at any point in this entire series, whether LeBron or Kyrie would be outstanding, you know, any doubts I had were about the rest of the team, right? Could they play team defense well enough? Could they rebound well enough? Could the could they somehow influence the Warriors to have a bad shooting night or interrupt their transition well enough to win a game? And finally it happened. But the story of the first quarter are fouls. I mean, the referee influence in this game, which I'm sure is going to be the plot point of a lot of stories tomorrow was incredible. Um, so I, this is what I got. I got that. So I wrote this down. In the first quarter, there were 10 personal fouls and one technical foul right until the final possession. And in the final possession, um, Curry, or this is or the penultimate possession, Curry goes to the line for two foul shots. And LeBron could have been taken out for the last 20 seconds of the first quarter, right? Give him you know, a little bit more rest. Instead, he stays in, takes the ball up, drives, gets another shooting foul on Iguodala this time with three seconds left. So 11 fouls and one technical in the first quarter. You combine that 
with the insane three-point shooting, which you mentioned before, although you forgot to mention that the Cavs tonight actually set the record for most three-pointers made in a, in a finals game, beating the record set in game two by the Warriors. But and Hold on real know, quick. Like, I'm going to stop you real quick. We actually haven't even set the final score. <laughs> so for the listeners that might not have seen the final score, Cavaliers won 137 to 116. Go back to that record talk. A 21 point margin of victory for the Cavs. They blew out the Warriors. And it goes to this first quarter. They score 49 points. I, I, I don't have the breakdown in front of me. Do you, can you find it while I, while I bloviate for the audience? Can you find out um, what their shots, attempted shots made were for the first quarter? Because it was, in, it was unbelievable. The three-point shooting from Kevin Love from the corners. Kyrie all night. I don't know if, uh, if Nylon Calculus or um, uh, Synergy Sports catalogs the number of swishes that players make in a game, but Kyrie's swish percentage tonight was outrageous. He, I, he easily swished more jump shots than you know, like non-swishes made. He was totally locked in. Um, but that first quarter, it was the whole game. The fouls they got, they induced from the Warriors, combined with their ridiculous shooting percentage um it just like it was an insurmountable lead basically they went up it was 49 to 33 at the end of the first enough to you know never relinquish the lead and the warriors got the game to within um i think 14 points that was the closest they could get this whole game and that solely is because again of that first quarter score yeah in that first quarter i mean you had you had just mentioned they were absolutely lights out how about i'm sorry to interrupt but wait how about amon shumpert right this whole game but that first that first quarter he draws fouls from stephen curry on a fast break and draymond green um you know on this jump this like insane jump ball foul if if i mean if any listeners did not see it draymond and amon match up on a jump ball and Iman totally fakes it, flops it, and sells it as a foul to the face. However, this plays a huge plot point in the rest of the game because somehow in that play, the refs apparently issued a technical foul to Steve Kerr when it seemed to everybody, including the official scorer, that they issued a technical foul to Draymond Green in that instance. Why does that matter? Because come the third quarter of this game, we can still stay chronological, but I got to jump forward for a moment. Come the third quarter, they issue Draymond Green a technical foul again. And we think, oh, for the second consecutive year, Draymond's been ejected from a finals game. Right. But no, the officials walk over to the official scorekeeper and they say, no, no, no. That first technical foul in the first quarter, that was for Steve Kerr. Which, I have to say, seems like a total lie. And that the refs panicked and didn't want to eject Draymond Green from this game because they knew of how bad it would look, that they were influencing the series that way, again, like they did last year in Game 5 with Draymond Green, right? Right. So, um, I mean, that's, that's a huge, huge moment in this game. I can't say the series because I still think it's right, right up against impossible that the Cavs can win, just up against it. Not quite it, but just up against it. But that was a huge factor in this game was how bad the refereeing was. And they end up letting the game totally get out of control with these guys on, on both sides, every player totally in the face of every single ref, yammering away. At one point in the third quarter, LeBron and KD get almost you know nose-to-nose in an argument. 
Anyway, like the ref, the officiating was horrific, but it starts in that first quarter. Eleven personal fouls on the Warriors and one tactical. Just I mean, very, very, very different game. The exact type of game that the Cavaliers needed, right, to in order to win. They were so physical, even on the picks. I, all right, I'm, I'm rambling. <laughs> jump, jump in, jump in. Yeah. So really quickly, you mentioned Draymond Green and the lack of technical foul in the first quarter. I thought it was interesting. I'm not sure if you saw this, but his wife actually sent out a tweet uh, late in the game complaining about the referees, and she said that the NBA is rigged. And it's like, hold on a second. Like, if the NBA is rigged, then are are you really saying that? You know, if, if you're complaining about Cleveland getting the you know the benefit of the calls, you got to look at your own husband, who should have probably been ejected with two technicals in the game. But I, I don't know. I think that could have been a, a huge factor in Game Five. Uh, you know, that that could have played to Cleveland's advantage had that happened. But uh, a few moments ago, you asked me to pull up some stats, and I did pull up the uh, the final yes. game book, and uh, these are just ridiculous numbers from Cleveland. I mean. They shot 58.3% from three-point land. They were 7 of 12. You from, mean, are you saying just in the first quarter? In the first quarter, yeah. And well, the, I mean, but the, I got a better one than that. By the by entering the fourth quarter, when the game really was kind of blown out, entering the fourth quarter, they were shooting through three quarters 60%. That's unheard three. of. That's unheard of. It's pretty, I mean, I'm, yeah. I mean, so anyway, I, sorry, I've, it's the I've, first quarter, though. Yeah, I've never seen stats like that in a NBA playoff game. I mean, period. I've never seen that. And to me, they're Kevin remar- Love. Kevin Love ends up finishing the game six for eight from three-point range. Right. He was he was great. He had he had 14 points. He was a leading scorer in that first quarter. He went three of four from the three-point line, played, you know, just under 11 minutes. And uh, gosh, I mean, Kevin, How about, wait, Kevin sorry, Love but, has been oh – Kevin Love has been – great i think for cleveland the last few games I and mean, we hear all this stuff about Kyrie and lebron and granted they're both putting up phenomenal numbers but i think kevin love has actually had a decent series of At course least. he has look he's had timely three-point shooting and in this game in particular his his defense was a lot better and his rebounding was awesome can we um oh my god i'm looking i'm looking at the final stat sheet too i don't want to jump too far ahead because some of these stats are so gaudy but let, let's jump to, um, if you don't mind, I have a few second quarter observations. I'll keep them short. Basically, the second quarter, J.R. Smith he hits his third three, <laughs> and it's a shot from 35 feet away. <laughs> LeBron goes underneath the basket, draws three defenders, hooks a pass with the shot clock winding down to J.R. at the top of the three. At 35 feet out, of course he hits it. But his, and he, but his defense... On Clay Thompson was awesome this game. It was fantastic. And on Stephen Curry. You know, I think this kind of gets said about him all the time, but when he tries, when he really puts in effort, he's an impact player on both ends. He was fantastic tonight on defense. Um, yeah, more Kevin Love three-point shooting, swishes from the corners, and Kyrie's shooting. Jesus Christ. Um these lean-in, lean-forward three-pointers that he was hitting. Do you know what I'm talking about? These, yeah, these, I've, yeah. It's, it's really rare that you see a player, I guess Steph, no, Steph's a little more of plants his feet, squares up his shoulders. Kyrie has this lean-forward, beautiful three-point shot that he deployed I mean, several times in this game. A very awkward position for most players, but he was electric. Um, and then, I mean, do you have any second-half uh, memories or observations? I mean, I thought Kyrie played phenomenal. 17 points in the second awesome. quarter. Uh, he was awesome. just, he was, he was, I think, the key to 
I mean, like I told you, I, I thought that second quarter, third quarter, I thought the Warriors were going to continue to bounce back and make that game close, well, and it just never quarters, got that way. Well, the third quarters in this series have been the worst for the Cavs. Right. Right. These three games have been – the Cavs were in it um, last game, obviously, but also in game two they were in it, and it was the third quarter in both games that the Warriors either you know won it in game two – or crept back in enough in game three to win at the end with Durant's shot. But no, and here's something else that Kyrie was awesome at tonight. He laid some vicious illegal screens. You know, like instead of screening with his um, shoulders squared and his hands across his chest, he just straight up threw his shoulder into Kevin Durant or whomever was guarding LeBron during, you know, most of the game. So, you know, like there's another moment where the cliche was thrown out, of course, leading to this game. Oh, the Cavs, they got to be more physical. They got to punch him in the mouth. Uh, I mean, this is as close as they're going to get without literally punching the Warriors in the mouth. It was so ugly and physical. And in a game like that, the, the, the Cavs actually are the bulkier, stronger, um, you know, better team. So yeah, it, it was we, awesome. We talk about that physicality. I mean, I, I thought that in the third quarter with LeBron picking up the, the technical with uh, Kevin Durant, I mean, I think... I don't know. We saw that little confrontation, that little yelling match. That, that was interesting. That was weird, though. So, so Durant, yeah. Yeah. so Durant seeks LeBron out, which was really interesting, and right? I, yeah, and Durant would totally be snapped in half if they actually got in a fight or something <laughs> like that. I mean. Well, I, I mean, I don't think it was headed there, but it was an interesting choice, you know. So I don't really know what instigated it. I'm sure there's. I, I haven't read any stories right now uh, at nearing midnight, but I'm sure. Dave McMenamin of ESPN, or somebody's going to write about that. But LeBron was saying to him, why are you talking crazy? Why are you talking crazy? Something, something, something. The, the camera was only on LeBron, LeBron's face during that time, so we weren't able to read what Durant was saying. But then LeBron said something about, um, I was over here talking to my coach. Something like that. It was either that or he said, don't go, don't go over there talking to my coach like that. It was something like that. But really a weird moment because Durant seeks him out, gets in this quasi-argument with him, but they, they clearly weren't about to have an altercation. They just kept, you know, yammering at they each were other chipping. and jawing at each other. Yeah. I, it was just, but it was, I wasn't really sure what Durant was trying to accomplish with that moment. Well, you know, like, the, was, that a, was he trying to somehow, I, I don't know. It was, I thought it was a really bad look for Durant. And it ends up dragging, you know, Zaza... And later, Draymond into the throes of other really bad calls. You know, like, I actually thought it had a negative repercussion for the Warriors. Also in the third quarter, you, you forgot to mention the most fun play of the game. I'm not going to say it's the best play, but the most fun play of the game, which was LeBron's self-alley-oop off the backboard. So here's an interesting note about that. Uh, Jeff Van Gundy said during the game, I guess they got an official update from the, uh, the scorekeeper, the statisticians, that did not count as a rebound or a shot. Or his. Well, but it didn't hurt his triple. So LeBron right, has right, right. a triple double for this game. Did that detract from it? Because he got. It did detract. Because he ends. He, he finishes the game with 10 rebounds, 11 assists, and 31 points. Classic, amazing LeBron playoff line. But and on that note, he did set uh, an NBA record for most triple doubles Troll, yeah, in an NBA Eddie Finals Johnson, game, which is yeah, awesome. which is phenomenal. I mean, there, it's only happened like eight times in NBA history, and he's done it four times. I mean, that's that's just disgusting. How good of wait, a talent wait, wait, wait. he is! No, 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 it was his ninth triple double. Sorry, it's happened. 
It's happened, I think, four Are you talking? Oh, I'm sorry. Like are you that. talking about the final? Maybe it was postseason right, right, right. triple doubles. Right. Okay, okay. Um, but are, but did that? Are you saying that the self alley oop? It it, it, it didn't it foils. It didn't, it didn't oh, count it didn't toward those stats. Oh. Right, right. Okay, okay. But his stats still. He still did get a triple double. Correct. Independent of the self alley oop. Okay. Correct. It was just a sick play. So if anybody didn't see it, basically, LeBron goes into the. Uh, you know, he drives in the paint. It's cleared out because the defense reacts to the 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 defense anticipates his pass on that play with such intent that every defender in front of him scatters and and sort of like dashes toward a man either beneath the basket or in the corner, and LeBron clearly did look to pass, so he he basically leaps up, and it looks like he's going to go for a finger roll, but he also could in that moment you know shoot a pass out to the three point line like he's so good at, but instead, just before his feet hit the ground, he gently lofts it off the backboard. I'd say he's maybe, you know, six feet from the basket and just <laughs> takes his own alley-oop. It was, it was awesome. Uh, you know, a great testament to, you know, look, you know, sometimes a player like that really is unguardable. You know, when he can make those split-second adjustments right at the last moment, um, you know, that's why he's... Yeah, and, and we yeah. talk about players being able to create their own shot... And, you know, typically it's, we you don't know, literally separation. Mean it like that, right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I don't find anyone open right now. I can't pass it to anyone. I'm stronger. I'm more physical. I'm just going to pass it to myself off the backboard, throw it down, get this crowd into the game. And I thought the crowd tonight, especially in that third oh quarter when God. it started to get Amazing. chippy, it was Amazing. phenomenal. And, and toward the no, end of the game, the, they started dude, chanting Cavs in seven. And <laughs> I don't know. I, I think LeBron just fired them up. And I, I mean, I, it was, it, I would say, hold on, more than LeBron. It was Kyrie's first quarter. Right, right. God, dude, the cue, I texted you, I texted you, I, I was watching on DVR, so I was a little behind you, but when I texted you that, I said something like, you know, the cue is amazing tonight, um, that I was watching in the, the first quarter footage. So the cue became, you know, twice what the Oracle has been this series tonight. It was vicious, fans on their feet, and, you know, so uh, John... L. Wertheim and David Epstein. David Epstein used to write for Sports Illustrated. Wertheim still does. And they put out a book. And in the book, um, one of the topics was what affects refereeing? Like what affects home court, excuse me, what affects home court or home field advantage? Like what, it, what does that really mean? And it's that the proximity of the fans to the refs affect the officiating. That determines home advantage in every sport more than anything. So in soccer... It's the most dramatic, apparently, followed by basketball. And tonight was a clear night where, like the, the you know, the gladiator atmosphere of the queue affected the officiating. And and you know, I wouldn't say that it rattled the Warriors as much as it just made it such a pain in the, you know, pain in the neck for them that they couldn't get a call. Um, now the queue deserves a huge. Um, a lot of credit for, for how for how this turned out tonight. So what is the response going to be when you go back to Oracle for Game 5? I mean, uh, Oracle is known to have, uh, you know, great home court for the Warriors. I mean, uh, well, does, does blowing yeah. the game impact this at all? I mean, I think LeBron I, said it great after the game. LeBron said that, you know, we have championship DNA. It's one game, and it's even tougher in Game 5. I mean, do the, do the Cavs... They're hungry. I, I, they kind of felt disrespected that the Warriors said we have no problem clinching Game Four in Cleveland. Well, yeah, it took, but it took a. I mean, look, it took a lot to come together, right, 
for tonight to happen. Like, I there are, there are still a few more notes I have, but we, we can come back to it in a little bit. Uh, just to, to jump to the final stat sheet, um, in addition to the Cavaliers, so they enter the fourth quarter shooting 60% from three. They would finish the game at 53%. So yeah, it was actually kind of inconsequential by that point. The 60% heading into the fourth quarter was insane. Conversely, the Warriors for the game shot 28% from three. And Steph was a non-factor, right? right. I mean, Steph was, he was four for 13 in the game, two for nine. But more than that, whether it's credit to J.R. Smith, Amon Shumpert, who harassed him and bullied him and made life hell for him, he was just a non-factor. I mean, I'd be interested to know how many touches he had tonight compared with what he usually has. His plus minus for the end of the game, by the way, was the lowest of any single player in the entire game. He was a minus 25. He just got destroyed. Um, although Durant was a minus 22. Right. And then on the other end, this is ridiculous. This is insane. LeBron, <laughs> I mean, I guess it's expected, but LeBron was a plus 32. And you know who is... Okay, LeBron was a plus 32. Love was a plus 18. I will tell you that just below those guys, Richard Jefferson at plus 13, he was awesome in the second half. He was fantastic. And, you know, going for every rebound with Tristan Thompson, throwing elbows, pissing off Kevin Durant at every opportunity he could. By the end of the game, LeBron switched from the Durant to take on Draymond for the, for the fourth quarter and some of the third. And Jefferson took on Durant in the second half. You would think that, I mean, like that would be a time when Durant would just get on fire. But Jefferson was fantastic, smothering defender. Kyle Korver was pointless in this game. I can't imagine they're going to play him anymore. God, was he terrible. Um, so anyway, it, a lot of things had to come together for this game. Richard Jefferson had to shut down Kevin Durant. Kyrie Irving had to be completely unconscious from the field, finishing every single layup he took, swishing every three, it seemed, um, off balance. J.R. Smith was fantastic. They had the a very clear home court advantage. Um so, you know, I don't uh, – Durant was two for nine from three and still scored 35 points, That's by the insane. Way. That's insane. And, and, and to me, it, it's kind of frustrating knowing that we are just three minutes away from this series being tied at two games apiece. Yes, yes, but, yes. You're so right. And it should. God, it's you're so right. It should be tied 2-2. And I think the Cavs have done a good job the last few games limiting turnovers. They, they, I mean, I, I think offensively Golden State has – not necessarily played well. Sure, they put up a lot of points, but they're not protecting the rock as much as they have, uh, you know, throughout the entire first game, first 12 games of the playoffs. They, they haven't protected it that much uh, against Cleveland. Uh, so, you know, who knows? Maybe if they can, if Cleveland can continue to create those turnovers, maybe things can, uh, you know, they can go to Golden State and actually steal a game. But one thing that I do want to ask you real quick. Odell Beckham sweatshirt and Odell. sweatpants combo. <laughs> yes, I own it. I have the exact same. It. Of course, I, do. I have the exact same velour, baggy, swaggy sweatsuit combo. Yes. <laughs> All right. So outside of that, uh, I believe it was, you know, something that I, I've, I've noticed that Steve Kerr has done when coaching in this series. He's rested both Steph Curry and Kevin Durant at the same mm. time, and so when it seems that. You know, Golden State is kind of chipping down at that lead. You know, they're not quite in single digits yet. 
but when you when you transition to the fourth quarter, of course LeBron's going to get his few minutes off, but I think you've got to have at least Durant or Curry on the court at all times. And I, I, they I, just wait, look so I mismatched. I don't remember. I don't remember that. But I, I'll, I'll have to trust you. But it, it must have been. It couldn't have been more than a minute or two, Austin. It's, I don't it, think it's not. It's not significant time. But I think it's enough to crush the momentum that you've uh, kind of built up. Uh, I don't know. I, I, that didn't factor into this game. You know what I mean? That was irrelevant. And in games that <laughs> you know, in the other blowouts. Uh, I'm sure that, however, Kerr, whether it's whether it's directly how he played them or had the lineup deployed through Mike Brown, I I'm sure it was fine. I I respectfully I just disagree about the impact of that, of that on these games. I can't imagine that, that's, I I don't remember that being a, a factor at any point, and I and that's definitely very low on the list of things that the Warriors would have to do right to beat the Cavs. You know, th- again, it was not mistakes by the Warriors. I mean, they game. scored 116. That's that should be enough to win in the NBA scored, game. Yeah, they, hey, they scored 33 in the first quarter. Right, it's great. You know, you know they they and you know their fourth quarter was at was 20 points because by that point it was basically a blowout and they were dog tired. But no, it was that the Cavs played with an admirable and impressive amount of energy and brutality. I mean. You know, Tristan Thompson, if anybody wants to go check, I mean, you should. everybody should check the highlights if you haven't seen this game. But Tristan Thompson was fantastic beneath the basket. Um, vicious. You know, like Charles Oakley-esque, Dennis Rodman-esque. It was fantastic. Um, so that's that's where I see, you know, the positives and negatives of this of, for, 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 for the Warriors. It's just like it's much more um, what the Cavaliers did right. All right, so last two questions for you before we uh, wrap this thing up. Game. Are we going to talk about Odell Beckham? Wait, we have to talk about Odell Beckham. <laughs> All right, let's talk Odell Beckham. It was he was ridiculously dressed, and I thought, I, you know, it's kind of sad when a petulant, egotistical athlete behaves just that way when everybody is criticizing that player for behaving that way. You know what I mean? Like he knows and has known for two years now that he's, you know, disliked and derided for this kind of childish presentation. And he's gotten a lot of heat for it this offseason. He looked like some kind of mopey, you know, kid sitting on the top of his chair. Not the seat, but the top, like, you know, the, the, the back of the chair. Sort of, you know, like lean to the side as if he's sitting in the back of a classroom. Like It was just a weird demeanor for him to have, I thought. That's totally fair. Uh, it's Odell Beckham. I mean, he's he's kind of a quirky guy. I think he was on a quirky. That's a weird euphemism to say. <laughs> he's he's he he seems like a a jerk, you yeah, know, or an egotist, or an egotist. I mean, he just signed a huge contract with uh, what was it, Nike? Well, yeah, I think it was Nike. But I mean, good on him. Maybe he's let that money go to his head. Who knows? But he's on my fantasy team, so gotta. Uh, yeah, that was wonderful. <laughs> right, you were being so gentle with him. God, that white baggy sweatsuit. That was a throwback, you know, to sort of the Allen Iverson era of the NBA when every player dressed like that. But, you know, I don't know. Very. So are you uh, saying are you saying that more NBA players or more people should dress like Westbrook at games? No, I think that <laughs> more people should dress like Pat Riley at games. That's who I think. Okay, Pat Her- Riley or Harris Maverick Carter. Back. Maverick okay. Carter. Not that I, I'm like I know too much about the guy. He's sort of shrouded in mystery. He is a fantastic dresser. 
from what from the limited footage I've seen of him. So I think uh, I think I think we've kind of come up with a new idea. Uh, I, I think maybe you should start a new fashion advice podcast for what you should wear <laughs> at sporting events. If if any of my childhood friends hear you say that, uh, they'll be aghast at the kind of just like heinously incorrect assessment you just made. <laughs> uh, you know, I grew up wearing gym shorts and sleeveless t-shirts for basically 22 years. And it was uh, a shameful 22 years of, of my life. I have no fashion sense at all. But I do know, objectively, that Odell Beckham looked just like garbage. Just like such a slob. <laughs> like, you don't know, like an egotistical slob. Really, and just a weird, just a weird demeanor for that environment as well. Sort of invasive in that he was right next to uh, the scorer's table. You know, he had the he had, he had a courtside seat right cl- closest to the scorer's table. So on inbounds, he was directly in every television shot. Just okay. Anyway, I wanted to get that out of the way. What were your other questions? All right, so two questions for you. One, uh, do you think that the Cleveland Cavaliers have any shot in Game Five, or do you think the Warriors close it out? Well, those are different questions. Uh, the war, the Cavaliers have a shot. The Warriors likely will close it out. And I, I, I you know, this is not a sophisticated take. I think that, you know, the people on te- the pundits on television that really get, you know, that they get they get clicks, they become popular for being staunch and definitive in their picks or in their opinions, just game to game, half day to half day. But I think for casual fans out there, serious fans, like fans of the NBA, everybody's attitude, unless you're from Cleveland, has basically been, okay, the Warriors have a 99% chance of winning, but we still hold that 1% for the Cavs just because of LeBron, right? And because they were giant killers last year. So it's the same mentality I had tonight. The same, you, you open up the podcast saying, oh, we all thought the Warriors were going to sweep. Or something you were more effusive. You were like, we were all sure the Warriors were going to sweep. Right. I wasn't sure. It seems by far most likely. I mean, Same es- thing, es- for, especially with for the circum. Five. Yeah, especially with the circumstances, just how they lost oh, Game Three. Yeah, just, I mean, oh my god. To me, yeah, I agree. Yeah, De- so I mean, deflating. We right. would have thought. Yeah, to me, it kind of reminded me. I, I know scenarios are different, but it kind of reminded me of Game Five of the Spurs. Rocket series where the Rockets were in command, lost that game, and then I thought they would come out deflated, similar to what. Wait, wait, was that wait was that good for the Rockets? It was not good for the Rockets, actually. <laughs> so, but uh, Hunter, my last question for you: uh, I think it's almost a foregone conclusion that if the Warriors do win, hold on to win the series, that Kevin Durant is likely to be the MVP. My question for you is this. LeBron James has just been absolutely phenomenal during this playoff series. Can you make a case for him as the MVP of the series on a losing yeah, team? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, you, I guarantee that verbatim, the question you just asked, is going to be parroted and asked on talk radio on ESPN and Fox Sports like for two consecutive days, I guess. That's, or, you know... Good, even when Durant inevitably wins it, right? It's going to be like, well, a case that could have been made for the... Yeah, of course. But it, it's, a, it's a pointless conversation to have because... It goes to the winner. Um, yeah, it's just like it, like in every single one of these championships. Um, I think that going into Game 7 last year, uh, there were discussions about like if the Cavaliers were to have lost, you know, could Kyrie have been given the MVP? And then two years ago when Iguodala was given the MVP 
Um, there were discussions about how LeBron still deserved it and stuff like that. <laughs> you right. know, it's 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 I don't know. I you know I'm typically the worst person to ask questions about <laughs> awards and lists and rankings because I I typically have zero percent care in the matter. I really I never remember. It just doesn't interest me. I I don't really think that championship MVPs truly represent like the narrative of the series. You know what I'm saying? There was in one of these Patriots Super Bowls, there was some role player. I don't know if it was or maybe Brady won it, but Dion Branch should have won it or something like that because he played both sides of the right. ball. Do you remember do you remember this? I, I do actually. Uh but okay. that, that's so, the thing. It's 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 a quarterback. I mean once you have the quarterback, right. you're always gonna give I'm, me an award. I'm that, my my point is okay, we gotta cut through the BS. Any award in any thing, be it sports or the Oscars or your, you know, like office employee of the month, it's all like publicity driven. It's completely self-promotional. You know what I'm saying? That's not to suggest that it, there isn't merit involved to a degree, but it's not an actual representative most of the time of the best movie of a year the best player in a series or just the most interesting or influential player in a series. That's also what I mean. You know, you know what I'm saying? That's why I mentioned Deion Branch from that Super Bowl. I guess Brady wins it or whatever because hey, he's the quarterback. He threw the touchdowns. He led the team. Blah, blah, blah. blah. Who cares? Um, the most interesting, memorable part of that game was that Deion Branch, I believe, played both sides of the ball and had a great game. And I thought he deserved um, you know, the MVP. Or Eli Manning... He got the MVP in the first time they beat the Patriots, right? Am I wrong with that? Or was it a defensive play? Who got the MVP? Do you remember? Uh, I believe it was Eli. I couldn't. Don't quote me on that. I, I don't know either. But you know who should have gotten the MVP? Was, was David, David Tyree. Tyree. Right. Like, <laughs> yes. Because, listen, I, I mean, it was an incredible pass by Eli. But that play is, is everything, right? It represented everything about that game. It should have been him or a co-MVP between Justin Tuck and um, uh, JPP in that game. So anyway, my point is they're arbitrary and Durant will win it because he has had an outstanding series. The Warriors are likely to win. Um, So I get, you know, but if we're going to be literal about it, dude, LeBron's been unbelievable, especially when you think about how, if we do his plus minus for the amount of time he's been off the court and how badly the Cavaliers oh have God. played without him, right. it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, laugh, it's laughable. He was, so in the game three loss, um, when he went off the court, which was for two minutes, a total of two, he played 46 of 48 minutes in game three. And during the two minutes that he was off the court, the Warriors, uh, the Cavs were a minus 12. You, you know what I mean? So... You know, you want to be very literal about this award. Of course LeBron should win it. LeBron also probably should win the MVP award for the regular season every single year until he has a bad season, right? He should have won it probably every year for the last 10 years. But uh, it's just all moot and, for this, you know, for the sake of self-promotion in any sport or any realm. That's a, it's a, it's a very fair take. And, uh, Le- LeBron is just playing a, a phenomenal level. And I, I, I hope game five is competitive. I hope that, uh, whoever wins, I hope it's, you know, less than a five point game. I just want it to be close and enticing for fans to watch. I don't want to I'm see fine. a blowout yeah, or anything I, like I'm, that. I'm but. cool. You know what though? I'm, I'm, I'm willing to admit I, I will accept a blowout because this game tonight was enough for me as a fan to be chill 
about it all. Like, I'm cool. I, I, you know, I was extremely disappointed up until this point. But I got this. In my mind, this is like the most we could ask out of this series, you know? Uh, everything else would be, you know, uh, my, my expectations had lowered so, 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 so low that I'm cool now. I'm satisfied. And, it, and if the next game is close, if the Cavaliers somehow win, I'll be elated. Be fantastic. Game five takes place Monday night uh, in the Bay Area. And, of course, uh, Warriors are down, or the Warriors are up 3-1 of the series, going for their second title in three seasons. But, again, game four, uh, Cavaliers kind of shocked the NBA world, scoring an NBA record 49 points in the first quarter, winning the game 137 to 116 behind. Uh, setting the record right. and setting the record right. for three-pointers made in a game against a team that everybody thinks is synonymous with the three-point shot, the Warriors. Right, and, and they did it behind a, another phenomenal effort from LeBron James and Kyrie Irving. Irving and, and essentially the entire Cleveland Cavaliers team. But, Richard uh, Jefferson, MVP. <laughs> do not forget Richard Jefferson. But uh, Hunter, this is, I think, the first time we've had a podcast that has started on one day and ended on another. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> thanks for uh, thanks for joining after midnight. Thank you for having me. And thank you to whatever listeners are going to listen to 90 plus minutes of us you know, <laughs> just gabbing all day. Yeah, well, it was great to uh, have you on again. We talked Astros with uh, Hunter and Derek Fogel. Also, we spoke uh, a little bit of uh, the Comey hearings with uh, Jeremy Paxton, who uh, I guess was what we call lit in, uh, in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Just for, for, any, for anybody who is a fan of Jeremy and his drunken misbehavior, this entire evening, Austin and I received very loving, overly affectionate texts from him in the throes of his inebriation. So the text messages that I'm looking at are all like angry. Uh, they are hilarious, oh. but they're angry. He takes a few. Oh, mine sh- are very sweet. Yeah, he takes a, a few shots at the uh, the state of Louisiana in there, which is completely random because he's in. What Boston. did you? What, how, did you egg, did you egg him on to do that? No, but he did say that uh, he likes the idea of a political podcast. And uh, he said, as long as we're both rolling three deep. So he likes the idea of podcasting while boozing. I have a better one. I have a better one. He texted me. He goes, uh, I was complimenting him. I thought he was, I said, you were shockingly cogent is what I told him. (laughs) And then he wrote back, quote, don't know if that's good or bad. Most of the show is me not drunk. So maybe I need to sink three vodka shots on an empty stomach from now on, question mark. And then he wrote, JK, ellipses. Miss you in the studio, man. (laughs) Jeremy Paxton, have fun in Boston. Be safe. And uh, we'll see you back here in the Weekly Brew Studios uh, here in just a few weeks. But uh, Hunter, it's been great. Always great to have you in studios and I guess over Skype as well, because that's what we do. And we want to talk sports and we want to do it, you know, in a timely fashion. We have phone calls at midnight. Give the people what they want. Let's uh, let's give them the outro. Exactly. So make sure to follow Hunter on Twitter at HunterAtkins35. Also, you can follow myself at A Statin. And if you want to follow the show, which we highly recommend that you do, just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And on behalf of all my co-hosts and all of the guests tonight, uh, stay lit, Houston. You've been listening to the Weekly Brew. 